Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. Today we will be discussing Peggy Orenstein's Girls and Sex. I consider this book essential reading for anyone who is a girl or has been a girl or loves a girl, but I'm including it in this podcast on patriarchy specifically because it contributes meaningfully to a conversation that we started in the very first episodes. Remember that for millennia, men thought of women's bodies as their possessions, and their reproductive capacity was considered a commodity. Up until about 100 years ago, women were still considered to be owned by their husbands under the laws of coverture, and marital rape was outlawed only in 1993 in all of the states of the United States. And that's a vestige of the belief that a man owned his wife's body, and it was his to do whatever he wanted with it. And then listeners will remember from the historical timeline in 1931, Virginia Woolf said that the one thing women couldn't write about was sex, even though men could write about sex. And in many ways, that's still true today. Then listeners will remember the book Our Bodies, Ourselves, which paved new paths in the 1970s. But we are still figuring out girls and women's bodies and sexuality in the context of always having been overseen and monitored and controlled by men. And I think it's important to remember that historical context as we consider this book as it relates to patriarchy. Also, I have to throw in, obviously, given the title of the book, this episode is about sex. So please be advised of the subject matter, which we are on purpose going to discuss very openly. And I'm very, very excited to discuss this book with my reading partner today, Natasha Helfer. Thank you so much for being here, Natasha. I am so honored. I just love being on this show. I love the title. I love you. I'm super excited. So excited to have you here. So before we start discussing the book, I'll just read a very short bio of the author, Peggy Orenstein. And I'll just read a little bit about her and what led her to write this text. Peggy Orenstein was born in 1961 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She earned her bachelor's degree from Oberlin College in 1983, and she began her career in New York City as an associate editor at Esquire magazine. After that, she served as editor of multiple other publications before moving to San Francisco to become the managing editor of Mother Jones. She left that post to write full-time in 1991. Orenstein lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, my hometown, with her husband and their daughter. She is the author of many books, including Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Girls and Sex, which we'll be discussing today, of course. And then her newest book is Boys and Sex, which I will be reading soon as well. Orenstein has been a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and Afar, and has also written for the LA Times, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, and she's contributed commentaries to NPR's All Things Considered. And she's been featured on many television shows and on NPR's Fresh Air and the PBS NewsHour. And her TED Talk, What Young Women Believe About Their Own Sexual Pleasure, has been viewed over 5 million times. So let's dig in on some of these topics, Natasha. And uh, we've both read the book multiple times, actually. And for this episode, I I chose some passages that I thought were really important. And I'll ask you what you thought of them. So I 
identified six different themes. So we'll go through them fairly quickly. I'll read a couple of passages from the book on each of these themes, and then I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So the first theme is the shame of being female. And really, the most memorable part of Peggy Orenstein's TED Talk for me, which I listened to years and years ago before I read the book, was I remember that she said that girls felt that their parts were both sacred and icky. And when I heard that, I was like, yep, that's exactly <laughs> like the girls in my life. And that's like the message that I internalized for sure was both sacred and icky. So um, from the book, Orenstein writes, quote, women's feelings about their genitals have been directly linked to their enjoyment of sex. College women in one study who were uncomfortable with their genitalia were not only less sexually satisfied and had fewer orgasms than others, but were more likely to engage in risky behavior. So how young girls feel about down there matters. It matters a lot. End of quote. Okay, so have you seen this in your in your practice, Natasha? And if so, how do you counsel women who want to rehabilitate their relationship with their sexual organs and their own bodies? Yes, I have absolutely seen this in my practice. All these messages that female bodies in particular receive about their bodies having to look a certain way absolutely interfere with sexual pleasure mm -hmm. and just being able to be present with your body and being mindful with your body, which is where we know that for the most part, sexual pleasure resides in a mindful space. Mm -hmm. I thought too, as I was just thinking about those two, they're kind of opposite concepts, sacred and icky, but both of them alienate you from the thing. It's the classic Madonna whore complex, right? On the one hand, you've got the Madonna who becomes a mother through an asexual way, which is impossible for the rest of us to even, you know, we can't, we can't, uh, we can't meet that standard. And then of course, you know, the, the whore, which is oftentimes in Christianity depicted by Eve, you know, the, the one who fell and led all men astray by her seductress ways, you know, mm -hmm. so this um, is very problematic for both men and women mm -hmm. <laughs> in regards to how we uh, approach, have approached female bodies for, you know, centuries. Fabulous. Thanks, Natasha. Okay. Second theme is sexuality versus sexualization. I'll read a quote from the book. So it, in this part, Orenstein is talking about how young girls, like really little girls, um, are, are dressing very sexually. So Orenstein says, quote, no one is trying to convince 11-year-old boys to wear itty-bitty booty shorts or bare their bellies in the middle of winter. As concerned as I am about the policing of girls' sexuality through clothing, I also worry about the incessant drumbeat of self-objectification the pressure on young women to reduce their worth to their bodies and to see those bodies as a collection of parts that exist for others' pleasure, to continuously monitor their appearance, to perform rather than to feel sensuality. And that's the end of that quote, but I want to say one, one more sentence that 
is in a different part of the book on the same topic. She says, quote, when little girls play at sexy before they even understand the word, they learn that sex is a performance rather than a felt experience, end quote. So I'd love it if you could talk about that concept, Natasha, too, that sex is a performance rather than a felt experience. Yes, this is really at the heart of, I think, most sexual dissatisfaction that isn't about, you know, an actual dysfunction in your body. Uh, Most psychological dysfunction, I guess, right, is that we are so caught up in the performance of showing up correctly that we can't make space or room for our own lived experience. And don't think that we're doing our kids a lot of service when we continue to role model a lot of our own performance anxieties. You know, how many times are we as adults uh, showing our kids that we are not happy with our bodies or that we need to present a certain way in order to be considered attractive? And um, and it's not, you know, I, I do think that the media hits on girls at a much higher frequency, but we are seeing like eating disorders raise up for boys um, and other concerns in regards to body policing for young boys as well. Mm. Because I think we do this to both genders, you know, both genders, in a sense, have this objectification about how they're supposed to present sexually. Mm-hmm. That's true. In very problematic ways. Mm-hmm. Okay, on this topic, I actually had two more quotes that I wanted to read really quickly. Orenstein says, quote, if the script handed down by our hypersexualized culture expanded the vision of sexy to include a broad range of physical size and ability, skin shade, gender identity, sexual preference, age, if it taught girls that how their bodies feel to them is more important than how they look to others, if it reminded them that neither value nor empowerment are contingent on the size of their boobs, belly, or ass, if it emphasized that they are entitled to ethical, reciprocal, mutually pleasurable sexual encounters, then maybe, maybe I'd embrace it. The body as product, however, is not the same as the body as subject, nor is learning to be sexually desirable the same as exploring your own desire, your wants, your needs, your capacity for joy, for passion, for intimacy, for ecstasy. It's not surprising that girls feel powerful when they feel hot. It's presented to them over and over as a precondition for success in any realm. But the truth is that hot refracts sexuality through a dehumanized prism, regardless of who is in control. Hot demands that certain women project perpetual sexual availability while denying others any sexuality at all. Hot tells girls that appearing sexually confident is more important than possessing knowledge of their own bodies. Because of that, as often as not, that confidence that hot confers comes off with their clothes. End quote. I just thought that was really illuminating for me. And I just pictured, I think I've said this before in an episode when we were talking about the beauty myth, but it's like, yeah, of course it feels empowering to have people's approval and especially in a patriarchal society to have the approval of men, you know, who are setting up the game for them saying the hottest one wins. So the girl who's Mm -hmm. like, I'm the hottest, I'm the hottest. And they're like, yes, you're the hottest. Of course you feel empowered. But she goes on later to say, and this is the last one I'll share, but 
on, on this topic. She says, quote, a Bay Area high school senior asked me, isn't there a difference between dressing slutty because you don't feel good about yourself and you want validation and dressing slutty because you do feel good about yourself and you know you don't need validation? Could be, I replied. Explain how you know which is which. I can't, she said after a moment. My whole life is an attempt to figure out what, in the core of myself, I actually like versus what I want to hear from other people or wanting to look a certain way to get attention. And part of me feels cheated out of my own well-being because of that. End quote. I think that is the passage I remember most from the book. These are very complicated concepts. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had this thought even about every time I put on lipstick, you know, who am I putting on lipstick for? Am I putting on lipstick for myself? Am I putting on lipstick for other women? Am I looking, you know, am I putting on lipstick for men who I might be attracted to? I mean, and I think it's a complexity of a lot of those things. I don't know that any of us will ever escape Uh, the need for some level of social validation in any area of our lives because we're social creatures, right? Mm -hmm. So I do want to normalize that a little bit. Most of us do want um, to be validated, to be praised, to be thought of as special or as unique or as, um, you know, something, someone of value in some way or another. I think where we can make a difference um, as adults is to start watching what we praise young children and adolescents for, and we can make a difference in in that regard. Hmm. Fabulous. That's so great. Okay, next topic is modesty. So this is kind of a short one. I'll just read two quick quotes from the book. Quote, Enforcing modesty is considered a way both to protect and contain young women's sexuality, and they, by association, are charged with controlling young men's. And then the next quote on this topic of modesty is kind of in the context of talking about sexual harassment at school and the issue of girls needing to cover up Because if they don't cover up their bodies, then they'll be distracting to the boys and then the boys will be tempted and then they'll act, you know, in sexual ways. But really, it's the girl's fault because she's creating these sexual thoughts in the boy. So Orenstein writes, quote, not all boys engage in such behavior, not by a long shot. And many young men are girls staunchest allies. However, every girl I spoke with, every single girl regardless of her class, ethnicity, or sexual orientation, regardless of what she wore, regardless of her appearance, has been harassed in middle school, high school, college, or often all three. Who then is truly at risk of being distracted at school? End quote. Okay, two more. Women don't want to hurt feelings or offend, so they get pressured to go along with things that they don't want to do. That's the next theme. So Orenstein talks with, again, we've, we've said she, she's talking mainly with teenage girls, high school girls, college women. And like I said a little bit earlier, she's finding this phenomenon where girls are giving guys oral sex all the time, quote unquote, so the guy won't feel bad or be disappointed if the girl doesn't want to have sexual intercourse, then she's like, okay, okay, well, I'll make you feel better and I'll, 
give you a blowjob. And she even talks about, there's this, I would say the other passage from the book that is seared into my mind is this one story about a rape victim. And well, she talks about multiple rape victims. Actually, these girls are telling her their stories and they're, you know, they talk about being held down, they're struggling, but they can't bring themselves to actually say the word no, because they don't want to offend this guy or damage the relationship. And then this one that is seared into my mind is where the girl got up. She was totally raped. She actually was struggling and did say no, but she had felt so paralyzed. And then as she was leaving, she just walked out of his apartment, turned around and said, thanks, I had fun. And then shut the door. And she she told Peggy Orenstein this. And she's like, I don't know why I said that. I said, thanks, I had fun. And just this concept of having been so conditioned to not hurt feelings that they couldn't speak their real their real feelings, even in these really horrific circumstances. So here's a quote. Quote, for years, psychologists have warned that girls learn to suppress their own feelings in order to avoid conflict, to preserve the peace in friendships and romantic partnerships. Whether they hoped to attract a boy's interest, sustain it, or placate him, it seemed their partner's happiness was their main concern. End quote. And then one more quickly. She says, quote, nearly all the girls I interviewed were bright, assertive, ambitious, if I had been interviewing them about their professional dreams or their attitudes toward leadership or their willingness to compete with boys in the classroom, I might have walked away inspired. One girl summed it up by saying, I guess no one ever told me that the strong female image also applies to sex. And this kind of reminded me of our episode on sexual politics by Kate Millett, where Millett says that there are implications of female subordination not only on Capitol Hill, not only in the boardroom, but also in the bedroom, and even in marriages that in other ways might be really happy, but in the bedroom and in physical acts, there's still subordination going on. And a lot of times it's because the girl has been so trained to just please, the, the woman has been so trained to please the man. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is obviously a big problem in regards to gender roles, right? And how we typically raise girls to be polite and friendly and uh, comforters and peacemakers and help meets all these terms. And the research also shows that, yeah, it's not just in the sex realm. Um, women who are assertive or use language very similar to that of men in business meetings, et cetera, will be called things like bitchy or aggressive or problematic when men who exhibit very similar patterns of behavior are seen as leaders and assertive and competitive in, in positive ways. You know, they're seen as positive. So that is still, you know, kind of a, a cultural you know, war that we're fighting in regards to sexism. Uh, I think we're doing better in the boardrooms and job situations than we are in the bedroom, for sure. Okay, last theme from the book is purity culture. Orenstein doesn't cover Mormonism. Instead, she takes on evangelical Christian purity culture. And she describes how she, as a journalist, she... Um, went to a purity ball. And so she describes, you know, what a purity ball is and, and kind of lays the 
the framework of, of this purity culture. She says, the world's first purity ball was organized in 1998 in Colorado Springs, Colorado, by a pastor named Randy Wilson. As the father of seven children, five of them girls, Wilson believed it was his duty to protect his daughter's virginity. So these events, these purity balls, are an outgrowth of a larger movement called True Love Waits, which was a movement launched by the Southern Baptist Convention in the mid-1990s. And by 2004, more than 2.5 million teenagers had pledged that they would wait until marriage. That's one in six American girls. And so Orenstein goes to a purity ball, which is like a giant daddy-daughter dance where the daughters pledge their sexual purity. And they're, you know, dressed in, in white dresses and they dance with their dads. And she's talking with the dads and the daughters. And one of the, da- one of the dads tells her, quote, if someone put a gun to my daughter's head every day and said, if you lose your purity, I'll shoot you, I guarantee she wouldn't lose her purity. It's all about choice. End quote. And then there's this next passage is kind of long. Natasha, do you mind reading that one? Sure. Three quarters of white evangelical teens disapprove of premarital sex, as opposed to half of mainline Protestants and a quarter of Jews. Evangelical virgins, incidentally, are also the least likely to imagine that sex will feel good. Despite that, evangelicals are the most sexually active of those groups. They lose their virginity younger at an average age of 16 and are less likely to protect against pregnancy or disease, perhaps due to a lack of education or perhaps because preparing for intercourse would make their fall from grace appear premeditated. Ding, ding, ding. Sorry. Okay. They, (laughs) They remain less likely to use contraception and drastically less likely to protect against disease. Pledgers have the same rates of STDs and pregnancy as the general population. She goes on to say, also, a 2014 study of young evangelical Christian men offered a glimpse into the post-abstinent marriage bed. It turned out the men couldn't shake the idea that sex was beastly after the prohibition against it was lifted. They were surprised to find themselves still beset by temptation, pornography, masturbation, other women. What's more, back when they were single, they had the support of other abstinent men, Once wed, they found that talking to friends about sexual problems was considered a betrayal of one's wife, and they had no idea how to communicate with their spouses directly. A young woman who had taken a virginity pledge in the Baptist church at age 10 told a similar story on the website, XO Jane. After marriage, she couldn't let go of the shame and guilt that had been drummed into her. Quote, sex felt dirty and wrong and sinful, even though I was married and it was supposed to be okay now, end quote, she wrote. Quote, sometimes I cried myself to sleep because I wanted to like sex because it wasn't fair. I had done everything right. I took the pledge and stayed true to it. Where was the blessed marriage I was promised, end quote. Oh, welcome to my sex therapy practice. That's what I wondered. I thought that might be the case. Yes. Yeah, it's, it, you know, when you spend all of the developmental years teaching sex, teaching about sexuality through a fear-based paradigm and a consequence-based paradigm, that does not get undone in one day when all of a sudden you say, I do, and fall into a honeymoon bed together. <laughs> not to mention 
the fact that this whole approach assumes and treats people as if there has been no sexual activity prior to marriage. So either way, there's a lot of shame, miseducation, and uh, inability to communicate and get information about sex. If you've had sex prior to marriage in, in in these kinds of cultures, you often feel like damaged goods. You often are treated like damaged goods by other members of the society. You may not have as many options for marriage or for partnership. You may find yourself in less than ideal partnerships or feel deserving of a less than ideal partnership. I can't tell you how many um, women I've talked to in particular that come uh, from domestic violence situations where in a sense, they, they will tell me where I, I knew that I wasn't really marrying a great person, but I didn't feel like I really deserved anything better than that. So how internalized this becomes, you know, that the worth, the worth of a person has to do with what has happened between their legs is something that is incredibly problematic. And then, of course, for people who do stay true to the pledge and feel like they have, um, you know, arrived to the marriage bed in a pure way, are usually highly uneducated do not understand their body's potential for pleasure, do not understand their partner's potential for pleasure. Uh, Again, can't undo the messages that sex is scary or painful or messy or problematic or dirty, which is what they've been taught all along up until that point. There's no turn on switch that magically makes it beautiful now. Uh, And even if people feel like it is sacred and special and beautiful, again, those are not terms that really describe what sex is. (laughs) It's not this lovely embrace where you calmly hold each other and Mm -hmm. stare into each other's eyes. There's a lot of like movement and thrusting and fluids and moaning and (laughs) sighing and (laughs) bodily things that you would never expect, like queefing and... (laughs) having to go to the bathroom in the middle of an experience. (laughs) So, you know, when that's the only description that you have of the marriage bed is something beautiful and sacred will happen. It, it, it's highly problematic um, for the people Mm -hmm. that don't know what to expect. That another issue that I see is that when you go your entire developmental life, seeing your worth through this purity lens that your worth is tied to your virginity even when you have only marital sex that part of your identity is now gone and so i'll talk to a lot of people saying i still feel like something is missing about me even though they waited you know even though they only mm-hmm. had marital sex it's like there's this whole part of who they identified so strongly as um, in regards to their, their identity and not to mention the very problematic aspect of either fathers and or preachers being the gatekeepers of female sexuality completely de-eroticizes sexuality. (laughs) If if who you're thinking about is God or a father or a priest or preacher in the bedroom, yeah, you're more than likely not going to find that super arousing unless you're into that. And that's fine too. But <laughs> so rewiring all that is, yeah. is part of a lot of what we do in sex therapy. And it's, 
it's difficult work. It's challenging work. It's not impossible work. And it's work that I think everybody is deserving of. We're all deserving Mm. of pleasure. I love quoting Emily Nagoski, you know, the the author of Come As You Are is is pleasure is the measure. Pleasure Mm. is the measure. Mm. And whether you have a female body or a male body or a trans body, um, pleasure is the measure. Hmm. I love it. Well, let's leave it at that, Natasha. That is a perfect way to wrap up the episode. I love I love um, all of your insights and your, your, you would describe it as complicating the conversation. And I learned so much from all of those um, nuances and new ways of seeing things. And also your optimism in, in saying, yeah, it's, it's hard work, but it can be done and new pathways can be formed. And um, I so appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for being here. You are so welcome. I, I am in love with the fact that our brains are neuroplastic and can shift mm. and change. <laughs> and I love that our clitorises and penises have tons of nerve endings to allow for pleasure. <laughs> so I'm just in love with the whole process. So thank you for having me on. <laughs>